This is from the Shoyoroku, the Book of Equanimity, the third case. The invitation of the patriarch to Eastern India. The introduction. The state before the beginning of time, a turtle heads for the fire. The one phrase specially transmitted outside the doctrine. The lip of a mortar bears flowers. Now tell me, is there any accepting and upholding, reading and reciting in this? The case. <clears throat> a Raja of an East Indian country invited the 27th Buddhist patriarch Prajnatara to a feast. The Raja asked him, why don't you read scriptures? The patriarch said, this poor wayfarer doesn't dwell in the realms of body and mind when breathing in, doesn't get involved in myriad circumstances when breathing out. I always reiterate such scriptures, hundreds, thousands, millions of scrolls. The verse. A cloud rhino gazes at the moon, its light engulfing radiance. A wood horse romps in spring, swift and unbridled. Under the eyebrows, a pair of cold blue eyes. How can reading scriptures reach the piercing of oxhide? The clear mind produces vast eons. Heroic power smashes the double enclosure. In the subtle, round mouth of the pivot turns the spiritual works. Hanshan forgot the road by which he came. Shide laid him back by the hand. Last weekend, <coughs> Yogan and I traveled to, to Syracuse to meet with Shinger Roshi. And get a start, to get a, a feel for the style of her teaching, sense of the Sangha, relationships, the energy, dynamics. It was a very encouraging trip. Not that any decisions were made, but I feel that something was moved. It's hard to describe, hard to put the finger on it, but something is definitely moving. And there is momentum. We're looking at possibilities of exploring maybe merging sanghas, merging our work, our efforts, maybe working uh, with Shoboji Temple in Manhattan, which is already happening because some of our members are going there to sit. 
So something is happening. One of the topics we discussed has to do with how do we stay motivated? How do we stay encouraged? What encourages us? This is, this is not an easy practice. A lot of resistance to the practice. Some of it we produce, some of it is produced by the environment, family, friends, obligations, responsibilities. And we have many moments that we feel in alignment while we practice, and it feels amazing. And then the next day we discover that there's something else more important than practice. Maybe more amazing. And that steals us from the practice. This is a very important topic. Regardless of how long we've been practicing, we all encounter that. And we come into practice with a heavy load of a personal story, carrying it around in a large backpack. Contains our memories, opinions, feelings, associations, hopes, fears, aspirations. It's all there. It's packed neatly into chiseled and padded pack. pack we call the self, right? It's a comforting sense of I know who I am. Or maybe I know who I'm not. I know what I can do, I know what I cannot do. And through practice, little by little, we learn how to lighten the load of the backpack and experience spring in our step, right? as we open up the grasping hand of thought. And by purging the load, something happens. But this is just the beginning stage of practice. And we have to be very careful not to fall into the notion that the purpose of practice is to lose weight, to purge. In a way, it's just a byproduct what the practice does. It is not the purpose. You know, if we get too busy in letting go, letting go, letting go, that becomes the new thing we do. And we worry about things accumulating. More stuff to drop, to let go of, to pull out of the bag. Very quickly, it fills up again. That would be a very exhausting kind of practice. It would be very difficult to stay motivated. But it's not the correct way to practice. Or it is practice not based on correct understanding. So what is it that gives rise to the validity of the pack we carry around, the validity of the self? That self that we have to, or we think we have to keep 
purging stuff out of. Lose it. What is it that we have to lose? What are we holding on to? What is purging? You may remember the story of Winang, the sixth patriarch. As Hongren, the fifth patriarch, was getting old. He needed to find a successor. And so he asked the monks to express their understanding by writing a poem. And Winang was there for about nine months or so, working in the rice shed. Not even ordained. So, only one monk, the head monk, wrote a poem. The other monks were convinced that they have no chance. They didn't even bother. So he posted a poem. I don't know, maybe they had the bulletin board. He posted a poem somewhere. And the poem read, that was that Shen Zhu. That was the name of the head monk. He wrote, The body is the tree of wisdom. The mind by the bright mirror. At all times, diligently polish it to remain untainted by dust. That's what we do. Or that's what we think we need to do. Empty it out. Empty it out. Empty it out. Right? One day at a time. Next morning you wake up, it fills up again. If not in the morning, halfway through the day. Gets heavy. Gets difficult to move you become much less flexible. So that verse would suggest that we have to keep emptying out. If there is an inherent nature that's there, then all the stuff I experience must be in the way. And if I want to experience that inherent nature, that birthright, me, then I have to get rid of that which is not or which I think is not. Right? So, if we are attached to the backpack, this, this will make perfect sense. This way of understanding, this way of practicing would work. But that's limited. So, Hui Neng, he was actually illiterate, illiterate at that time, and uh, so he had to ask somebody to write a poem for him. Not write for him, but write it on his behalf. So the poem read, The tree of wisdom is fundamentally, fundamentally does not exist. It is fundamentally not there. Nor is there a stand for the mirror. Originally, there is not a single thing. So where would dust settle? What is the nature of the backpack? Where do you put all the stuff? Where do all the memories go, the storyline? Associations, fears, hopes, 
wishes. Your home, your car, your house, as it is, full or not full. What holds it? What keeps it together? What gives it validity? That's easy to answer, right? Me. That's who I am. But this poem offers us something beyond or something that unites. to practice from a world and we are in a world that is obsessed with holding on to everything and then what we do or what we can do is replace this obsession with wanting to let go of everything is it really different wanting to hold on to everything and then wanting to let go of everything is the same I don't want is exactly as I want. It's not different. We sit in Zazen, we experience thought after thought after thought, I've had enough, I don't want to think anymore. I want my mind to stop. That's what we know. We know to want and to not want. But what is it that wants? What is it that doesn't want? Is there something there? Is there a mirror to keep polishing? Is there a mirror to clean? Is there divine and mundane? Holy or mundane? See, all roads in the practice, in any spiritual practice, all roads will lead or should lead to realizing the fundamental nature of independent origination. That nothing exists unto itself. That what you think is there is not there. But as long as you think is there, it is there. Because you think it's there. So we obey what we think is there. So we have to go back and back and back to a place and a time before we were born, the original face, as this koan, some of you know that, what was your face like before your parents were born? How did you look like? How did you look like before there was any recollection in you, before there was cognition? Came out of the womb. I mean, I'm assuming it did not come, up, come out with the story you're carrying around now. Right? That was added later. So who were you then and who are you now?
So in working on staying motivated, we need to examine what is it that drains our motivation. You know, it's not enough to just feel, to just think about how can I keep myself on track. What is the path that we're trying to stay on? How do we get distracted? And that has to do with looking at thought, because as long as thinking is the predominant factor by which we examine reality, there is always an underlying identification with the self, or an imagined sense of duality between that which is the self and that which is not the self. And then from there, there is all that which is for me and all that which is against me. All that which I can find encouraging and all that which I can find not encouraging. It all revolves around a fixed sense of self. How do I feel about the world? Where do I get out of this? Is it benefiting me or is it not benefiting me? Do I like it or not? And all that begins with and ends with resistance to move, to budge. I want to sit here and observe the world. Because there is me and there is everything else. Me and reality. So do we eradicate or do we hold on? You know, we jump around between holding on to letting go. The bad news is that we experience this grasping self on a daily basis and there is no way to avoid the tendency. On the other hand, the good news is that we experience this grasping self on a daily basis and there's no way to avoid the tendency. That's the good news. Right? Because it means that every day, every moment, we have a, a chance to work on it, to see it, to take action, to not be taken by the habit of Holding on and rejecting. Adding and purging. I think that sometimes some of us find it depressing to know that no matter what we do, the weeds are boundless. The weeds are boundless. Be weeds, you know, are in Zen, another way to refer to delusions, or we chant it, right? It's boundless, it's endless, it never, ever will end. But who is deluded? Who wants to be enlightened? 
How do we create a self? Master Chinchin once said, human beings are inverted. They lose themselves and follow after things. Now, to lose oneself here means to lose touch with suchness, thusness, or pure naked reality, and blindly follow concepts, theories, ideas of other people, our own precious thoughts and opinions. Losing touch with the fundamental nature, we can be so gullible. And we abnegate responsibility for trusting the inherent. But then we trust something else. And we always end up trusting something. So we trust the habit. We trust what we hear. What we read. New research, new study just came out. Oh, great. That will sustain me for a while. New food. A friend of mine recently sent me a link to a new study that proves the many benefits meditation has on our physical and mental states. Well, there are many of them these days, right? And there's no doubt that Articles like that can motivate us in the right direction. Right? It's true. It does work. Right? And people actually do find their ways to meditation centers, self-help guidebooks. Right? So it can be helpful, maybe as a beginning stage. But there is a problem there. It is based on that which is benefiting. I need a proof. I get the proof, I'll do it. If not, I'm not going to do it. Show me that it works. So, I wrote back to him and I want to share with you what I wrote back. Science, and in parentheses, the general public, is examining meditation from a biased angle of benefit, quote-unquote which is rooted in the erroneous and common notion of dualism. As long as we hold on to an assumption of a self that is benefiting or not from a specific activity, we are trapped like an oyster in the shell using Plato's words. There is no doubt that meditation is an effective antidote to the self-induced stress and its health implications that are so prevalent in our society. Science here is simply catching up with the obvious, and since we, people, bow at its altar, we blindly gulp it down. We beg for tidbits without awareness that we are sitting on a gold mine, and so we wag our tails when science throws a nugget at our direction. How sad and pathetic. To quiet the mind is only the first step, and as such, meditation is just one aspect of practice, which, when, which when taken up in its totality, has the power to deconstruct the notion of separateness, or the self. When no longer bound by this common view, the practitioner is able to let go of an identification 
with a fixed position, merged with an ever-changing continuum, and flow more freely. How sad and pathetic. And it is sad and pathetic. You know, it's like we are, we are faced with a table full of amazing food. And yet we crawl under the table looking for crumbs. We're feeling hungry. And we try to satisfy this hungry in ways that never work. So we look for evidence, but we look for the evidence outside, somewhere else. We don't take the time to examine. Like I mentioned before, somebody came here a while ago and she, she wanted to try meditation and, and she came into Dokusan and, and she asked, why should I sit? And I said, well, do you need a reason to do everything you do? Can you do something without a reason? And she thought about it for a while and then she went back to the cushion and she never came back. And that was the answer. And it's very common. We need a reason because we are there, separated from what it, what's happening, separated from the experience. It's not enough to experience. I want to know where it's going. I want to know when I get there. I want assurances, guarantees. Will I get there faster if I pay more? It's like that story about this guy who goes into, he goes to study with the Zen master. No Zen master, he's a sword master. And, uh, and he asked the, the master, how long will it take me to reach proficiency, a black belt or whatever it was? And then the guy said, it may take like five to ten years. What if I practice every day? Uh, Twenty years. <laughs> what if I practice day and night? I abandon everything else. A lifetime may not be enough, was the answer. Because it's based on something. It's based on a notion of me and what I do. Not wanting to budge. Not wanting to see, to look, that there is nothing there. Now we have an assumption, right? There is an assumption. Before we take a step, there has to be a justified or justifiable reason. Right? This is the assumption. This is what we go with. Right? And when we look at it, if we do, and I think we do, some of us look at it deeply, we see that the reasoning is always vested in some aspect of gain and loss. What do I gain? What do I lose? I. 
gain something. I will lose something. The faith of mind says, that's the third patriarch, he said, the supreme way is difficult only for those who pick and choose. Simply let go of love and hate. The way, the way will fully reveal itself. The slightest distinction results in difference as great as heaven and earth. For the way to manifest, hold not to likes or dislikes. The contention of likes and dislikes is a disease of the mind. Without realizing the profound principle, it is futile to practice stillness. That's called practicing in vain, as Bodhidharma said. To practice in vain is to sit there like a lump, dead, no emotions. Go through the forms, bow, light incense, bullshit, that's all it is. Empty, meaningless practice. That is practicing in vain. And he says here, it's futile without realizing the profound principle. And then he says, intrinsically perfect like the great void, without lack, without access. Nothing to gain, nothing to lose. It's always been this way. And the same with as everything else, meditation these days have, has become a commodity. And like any other commodity, it's subjected to supply and demand. Which means that the supply stays on the shelf as long as there is a self that sees a so-called benefit in consuming that. So maybe new centers open up. They sell mindfulness practice. The more interested we are in it, the more expensive it may become, more special. Again, we're not willing to budge, we just want to change the circumstances and conditions to fit us rather than change that which is consuming. Mold it in our own shape. Feed our own desires, likes and dislikes. This is why, and I mentioned many times, the time you don't want to sit is the perfect time to sit. That's what sitting sit is most needed. And that's where it could be most effective in dissolving something. Don't make arrangements to make it fit you. You're allowed to adjust the cushion to fit you. That's it. 
that's as far as we allow. The rest sit with the discomfort. See where it goes, see where it leads you. Show up when you don't want to show up. And see what happens. And you will see the tyrant. The tyrant you have crowned. Actually, the tyrant we crown on a daily basis. By asking, what would I like today? What, I, what was it that I would not like today? Practice becomes a commodity for consumption. And we can also develop an insatiable hunger for reading, study. It doesn't matter. Meditation itself can be poison. If we do it in the same way we do everything else. Now, if we think we're going to get some merits out of it. I like incense. Two points of merits. I bow. Five points. Great. In this koan, this Indian king invited Prajnatara to a feast. And based on that tradition in those days, after the meal, the teacher would usually recite sutras as a way to give offering or merits to the host, to give something back. Right? You just got physical food and you give back so-called spiritual food. Symbiotic relationship between two people. Based on benefit. like swapping commodities. Nourishment for the body, nourishment for the spirit. Now, you, know, you may not remember that Prajnatara was the teacher of Bodhidharma, who is considered the founder of Zen, as you know. And due to the patriarchal dominance of Chinese culture at the time of Zen development, we mostly hear references of male masters through the koans and stories. Once in a while, we hear of a female master. It's mostly male. Some of it is directly stated, and I think some of it is implicit. In some koans, there's no mention of male or female, but we assume it was a male. I think it's quite refreshing to know that Prajnatara, there's strong evidence that Prajnatara was actually a female. The teacher of Bodhidharma was a female. It's important to note that. It's not that it changes anything as far as our understanding goes because wisdom has nothing to do with, gen with gender. It transcends gender. It transcends everything. But it is an important tidbit of information for us. So, instead of reciting scriptures, Prajnatara said, 
This poor wayfarer doesn't dwell in the realm of body and mind when breathing in and doesn't get involved in a myriad circumstances when breathing out. I always recite such scriptures, hundreds, thousands, millions of scrolls. There is another encounter, which similar encounter, which took place about 400 years later in China. And I want to read that to you. Different language. <laughs> Emperor Xuanzong of the latter Tang Dynasty invited Zen Master Zhui Jing of Huayang Temple into the palace for a feast. Same thing. The great teachers and great worthies all reading scriptures. Only Master Zhui Jing group was silent. Right? Only that group with this teacher did not read scriptures. The emperor asked, why don't you read scriptures? Zhui Jing said, when the way is easy, we don't pass along the imperial command. During the Halcyon days, we stop singing the songs of great peace. It's inherent, isn't it? And the emperor said, for you not to read scriptures may be all right, master. But why don't your followers read them either? And Zhuijing said, in the lion's den, there are no other kinds of animals. Where the elephants walk, there are no fox tracks. It's beautiful. Then the emperor said, then why do the great teachers and the great worthies all read scriptures? Zhuijing said, jellyfish have no eyes. In seeking food, they must depend on prawns. What I like about this, about the differences between this encounter and the one in India, is that the language is so different. And we can see how Zen developed. We can also see how Taoism affected the development of Zen. It doesn't point at it in the same way. But it's actually pointing at it much clearer. Jellyfish have no eyes. In seeking food, they must depend on prawns. What do you depend on? Who do you depend on? The new research. I'm convinced now. The new center that opened up. I'll go check out some of the lectures. Maybe Dharma talks. Which you need to, you should let go of as soon as you hear. All it needs to do, everything we read, everything we do, has one purpose. To turn you to you. And to examine 
What is it that I call myself? What is this thing? What is the ground I'm standing on? Pajnatara is talking about poverty, but what is this poverty? He says this, she says, this poor wayfarer. Now in Buddhism, poverty is a virtue. It's not what we think. It's not referring to the absence of stuff or money. To be poor means to be stripped down of a self. To have no opinions, no preferences. No self. How do you function without a self, though? And you know, somebody's asking, what would you like to do? What would you like to eat? I mean, of course you have preferences. There are things you like, there are things you don't like. My Zumi Roshi called that a non-personal self. That's a very interesting way to say that. Non-personal self. You know, to let go of everything does not mean to homogenize. That will be another trap. That will be holding on to something else. You hold on to a self, then you hold on to a no-self. What's the difference? You go from I want to I don't want. What's the difference? It's neither this nor that. A non-personal self is a self that does not feel injured, scarred. It is a self that doesn't take things personally. It is a self that's not there and yet functions freely. It is a self that can climb up a tree. We call it squirrel. the one that opens up the wings and flies. We call it a bird. It's not a bird, you know. But we've agreed to call it a bird, so we'll, we'll stick with that. And there is no self. We call it a self, but there is no self. I mean, you have a name. But your name has nothing to do with who you are in the same way that saying bird means nothing about that thing that opens up the wings and fly. Selfless self. A non-personal self. A self that is verified, as Dogen said, by the myriad things. A self that is not separated. What are the myriad things? What you're sitting on, what you're looking at, what you eat, what you breathe, the way you breathe, the myriad things.
home. Just home. To breathe in and out. You know, just that. You know, she says, when I breathe in, I'm not lost. In oneness. When I breathe out, I'm not lost in the multiplicity. Yeah, we say in and out. There is no in and there is not. You know, we say look inside. It's just the way we refer to examination. That's all. But the inside is not separated from the outside. Or if you want to look inside, then don't create an outside. If you look outside, don't create an inside. That will get you to the same place. Of no place. When I breathe in, just that alone, the breath. How often we take it for granted. You know, breathing, without that, when breathing stops, life ends. Do you ever think about that? The one thing that sustains everything you care about, how often do you stop and look and say, wow, this is amazing. I'm breathing. Maybe I should appreciate that. Pay attention to it. And the secret about appreciating breath is that when you do, you forget about yourself. You forget about your story. Forget about everything. You're one with inhalation. You're one with exhalation. Isn't that reading scriptures, reciting scrolls, reading books, breathing in, what's missing? Breathing out, undivided activity. That's your link. If you stay with your breath through the day, throughout the day, moment by moment, you will be or you will understand undivided activity. Because there will be no gap. You can try to hold your breath, but not for too long. You could try to create a self. Sooner or later it catches up with you, hopefully not just before you die. It will catch up with you. Before dying, we recognize the illusory nature of what we have created just before we die. So die now. Right? Breathe in. Die to breathing in. Breathe out. Die to breathing out. There is no book that can teach you that. You know everything you need to know. Before. It's in the introduction. I don't know how much of the introduction we take in. But it says the state before the beginning of time. 
the one phrase is specially transmitted outside the doctrine. The lip of a mortar bears flowers before you call yourself yourself. It's done. You have to clarify everything before you open your mouth. Then you can open your mouth and speak freely. Because if you don't clarify before you open your mouth, you get entangled in what you say or what you hear. Because you're looking for something that's not there. It's not there because it's nowhere to be found. That we don't want to accept. That we have a problem. The commentary says the honored one, Prajnatara, just brought up the head and tail, implicitly including what's in between. But what is the head? It's a reference to wisdom, understanding, realization. Of what? Oneness of all things. And what is the tail? moves, it functions. Now you, some of us that have cats know how essential a tail is for a cat. It's essential for functioning. What's in between? What is that which is between functioning and, and realization and oneness? Between the one and the many. It's not one and it's not many. It's not fundamental, it's not ephemeral. It's the whole body. It's you. It is not trapped by the tail. It manifests in the tail. It is not trapped by fundamental. It expresses the fundamental. You know, Jan Tong says, good words are to be treasured, but in the final analysis, they tend towards feelings and thoughts based on literary content. I don't know about you, but I don't think it gets much clearer than that. I don't know, I hope you see that. This is how we get trapped. This is how we trap ourselves. Okay, we don't get trapped. We trap ourselves. By looking for that which is inherent. And Lupo said, one who has only understood himself or herself and has not yet clarified the eye of objective reality is someone who has only one eye. If you want both eyes to be perfectly clear, you must not dwell in the realm of the body and mind 
and not get involved in a myriad circumstances. To not dwell is to not dwell. To not get lost in functioning and to not get lost in non-functioning, which means to not get lost in a self or in a non-self. Drop it all. You breathe in, it's all there. You breathe out, it's all there. The verse says, Heroic power smashes the double enclosure. This is the double enclosure. The double enclosure. Does it matter what is it that's trapping us? I want and I don't want. to end with a poem by Kabir, 15th century Indian mystic. He said, I say to the wanting creature inside me, this is really the wanting creature inside me, what is this river you want to cross? There are no travelers on the river road and no road. Do you see anyone moving about on the bank or nesting? There is no river at all and no boat and no boatman. There is no tow rope either and no one to pull it. There is no ground, no sky, no time, no bank, no fold. And there is no body and no mind. Do you believe there is some place that will make the soul less thirsty? There is another, do you believe there is another place that will satisfy your hunger? In that great absence, you will find nothing. Be strong then and enter into your own body. There you have a solid place for your feet. Think about it carefully. Don't go off somewhere else. Kabir says this, just throw away all thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are. Thank you.